the Russians were just not happy having a foreigner, a Westerner walking around in remote areas. So it was, you know, it was frightening. There was a while where I was fairly convinced I might get a 15 year sentence. This is back to your story. Charlie, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show, ma'am. My really pleasure. Um, to be here. Uh, you know, for, for people tuning in, uh, you know, the way I always like to start my podcast is if you could just give a, a brief introduction of yourself, who you are, what you're all about, everything you've gone through and uh, what, what you do. Sure. Um, I am an adventurer and travel writer. Uh, my name is Charlie Walker. I, for the last 12 or so years, have been undertaking various journeys by human power, often to quite remote parts of the world. I've written a couple of books, a bunch of articles, and I do quite a lot of public speaking about these journeys as well. Man, that is, uh, that, that is absolutely incredible. You know, Back to Your Story is all about sharing the individual story, who they are, where they've come from, the things that they've gone through. Um, you know, for, for your story, where does, it, where does it start out? You know, I know you said for the past 12 years you've done all of this, but where does your root beginnings uh, kick off? Um. I suppose, I mean, I grew up in quite a rural area in the south of Britain <clears throat> in a little village. And I was, I was sort of outdoorsy in that I was outdoors a lot, but I wasn't particularly someone who was, you know, out at the weekends hiking or scrabbling or climbing or, you know, anything like that at all, even mountain biking, nothing. <clears throat> there was nothing like that to do around where I grew up. But um, once I left school, and first got a chance to travel. I started sort of whenever I could scrape together, together enough money, I would head off and backpack for a little while, but it soon became clear to me that the aspect of that I enjoyed most was getting to the quite off the beaten path type places. And it soon became clear to me that the way to do that was often, you know, not in a bus, but yeah. by your own you know, means of transport, whether that be hiking or cycling or, or whatever. Uh, so when I was 22, I finally decided it was time to do something sort of slightly large scale. Um, so I set off and spent the following four and a half years cycling across Asia and Africa, uh, about 43, 44,000 miles. Uh, and then by the time I came home, I had, you know, this sort of wealth of, of stories and material. So I started writing and speaking about it. And then just over time, it became... It became a life, um, and now I continue to head off on various journeys. Wow, that is <laughs> that's absolutely incredible. I mean, what is it inside of you? Like, I know that you said you like to be outdoors and you're a kid and all that <laughs> stuff, but how does something that that big? You said four and a half years or three and a half years? Uh, four, and a half. four and a half years, right? How, what what goes off inside the brain and says, "All right." You know, we've, we've done this, but now it's time to go away for four and a half years and travel on a bicycle of, of all means. Um, I suppose the main driver would have been curiosity, but that's a slightly annoying flippant answer, I, I realize. Um, so beyond that, I, I think when I first started doing this, there was a sort of healthy dose of, I guess, ego going with it. I quite wanted to not make a name for myself or like stamp my mark on the world, but to sort of see what I was capable of, what I could do uh, and just sort of push things a little bit and make life a bit more difficult for myself. Cause I grew up with a, you know, fairly pleasant, comfortable kind of, you know, middle-class middle England background. 
um and you know that's great but it's sort of not enough <laughs> for some people and, yeah and i think i just needed to sort of break out of that mold a little bit yeah i mean that's that's uh you know that's so so unique because a lot of people when they want to get out of their comfort zone uh maybe they go camping for a weekend or go camping for a week or two but uh to say all right i'm gonna leave for four and a half years to travel on a bicycle um when doing this did you save up a whole bunch of money like how did you fund the experience and I mean, four and a half years, that's not four and a half days, a very long time. Yeah, I saved um, you know, my, all the money I had in the world when I was 22 after quite a lot of quite intense saving was 9,000 uh, pounds, no, eight and a half thousand pounds, um, which, you know, it might sound like a fair amount, but it's not going to go all that far, I suppose. But I managed to raise a further three and a half thousand with a a bit of comp, uh, a bit of sponsorship from a, a tea company as it was the most british thing ever <laughs> um and i put all that money together and managed to eke it out for over four years um just by you know if you're living in a tent and you're traveling you know under your own steam on a bicycle and you're cooking the majority of your own food on a little camping stove then you can live for you know at times a dollar a day depending on what country i was in the cost of food and stuff um it makes life very very cheap Wow. So you made, uh, what, 12, 13,000 pounds last you four and a half years. Did you get like make any other money while you were there? I made the odd small amount through a bit of writing, selling the odd photo. Um, I stopped and worked in Beijing for a brief stint. Um, but I, I wasn't particularly saving while I was there. I was kind of just living. Um, yeah, no, that, 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 that amount sort of, I managed to eke it out. Wow. And what made you, especially for this first leg of the trip or first four years, uh, what made you decide, okay, I'm going to do a bicycle and I'm going to go on a tent and, and do all that instead of, you know, other means of transportation or hostel or whatever. Um, well, in budget is one thing, um, yeah. you know, it, it just, it costs nothing. In fact, there was a three week stint early on when I was cycling sort of up through Sweden, the length of Sweden and, in Scandinavia, they've got this uh, system for recycling called Pant. And every time you buy a, a bottle or a, um, aluminium can, you, you pay a little bit extra for them. And then you go and sort of feed them into this electric machine, this automatic machine in the wall of the supermarket. And it scans them and it gives you a little payout of, you know, a few cents for each one or whatever. Yeah. And in Sweden, I live for three weeks off that I just collected bottles and cans on the side of the road. Um, you know, I was cycling, I was traveling quite slowly. I didn't mind stopping, hopping off my bike, picking up the bottles. It seemed to be doing a good thing for the planet as well. Um, yeah. or at least for the, for the look of, uh, Scandinavia. Um, <laughs> and then I would get to, you know, I'd pass through a town every day or two and I would have, you know, huge bulging bags of this stuff strapped to the side of my bike. I'd feed them into the wall of the supermarket get the money, spend some on food, pocket the rest. And for three weeks, I lived purely off that. Um, but the, I mean, the reason the bicycle, I, a year before I set off, I went and cycled for two weeks across, um, well, from Beijing to the Mongolian capital, Ulaanbaatar. And that was, it was about a thousand miles, two weeks, uh, this sort of about half of it was across the Gobi desert. Um, <clears throat> quite a lot of it was off road. There wasn't a, a built road at that time. It was just kind of dusty tracks through the desert. And I didn't actually love it, to be honest. I didn't have the best <laughs> of times, but during, I mean, I, before, shortly before I set off, I broke, um, uh, I broke my wrist, 
uh, and well, I broke my wrist the day after I arrived in Beijing. And then shortly before I set off, I, I snapped a muscle in my leg. So I was not particularly well put together at the time. But um, I realized that although cycling across the Gobi wasn't perhaps ideal on that particular occasion with those injuries and into quite a fierce headwind for most of the way, I realized that the bicycle, there was something to it. It was kind of a key to traveling very, very cheaply, but forcing you to visit all those places in between, the places that you would breeze through on a train or a motorbike or a car or a bus or whatever um and you meet all these fantastic people interesting normal people who are just from a world you know completely different to my own and it was during that fairly unexciting frankly two weeks that i kind of realized that there was something to the bicycle and 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 i had for quite a while up to that point i think been building up to this idea that i wanted to travel i wanted to be a travel writer um and i realized you know something kind of clicked in me and i realized if i you know, go by bicycle, I can travel for a really long time. I'll gather a load of information. I'll have a lot of interesting experiences. I'll meet a lot of interesting people. And it just seemed like a sort of a logical, affordable first step. And the tent, you know, just facilitates that. You wake up each morning in your tent, pack up your tent, and don't know where you're going to sleep that night. And there's something very liberating about that. Yeah, there, there's something really liberating and beautiful about that. And, uh, you know, although it's not the same, uh, as, as the experiences you've gone through, but you, you did say something about traveling on a bicycle through cities and towns and the things that you would normally miss. Uh, you know, when my wife and I, we go traveling, we spent four weeks traveling throughout Europe. Um, anytime we'd get to a city or town, our 90% of our means of transportation was on a bicycle. And the sole philosophy was that you miss so much when you're, you know, moving around in normal transportation you get to see so much more when you're traveling on a bicycle. Um, and, and I totally agree with that. When you started gearing up for your first expedition, you know, um, A, did you know it was going to be four and a half years? But B, what did your friends and family think? Um, I knew it was going to be long. I was reckoning on about four years. <coughs> Sorry, I have a bit of a throat. Um, yeah, I was expecting about four years. And, you know, you can't be precise with how long these things are going to take. Um, but I, I suppose a combination of uh, stopping to work for a little bit in Beijing, doing the same for a very brief stint in Cape Town. You know, I just ended up taking a little bit longer. Uh, friends and family, I suppose they were a little surprised, perhaps. But I think I've been talking for a while about wanting to, you know, do some sort of large scale journey, some sort of adventure. So I think people kind of, you know, took to the idea relatively quickly. Uh, my parents were pretty cool about it. Um, I have three siblings, so there are spares. <laughs> um, <you know. laughs> That's so funny. Um, uh, you know, when, when, especially this first trip, how do you decide where you're going to go? You just like look at the map and go, I'm going to go there. Like, do you fly there with your bicycle or your tent? How, how do you even prepare for something like that? Um, well, I, I looked at the globe and I thought, you know, I'm on this really tight budget, so flights are going to be a problem. So I'd rather not fly anywhere. I'm looking at the map, you know, Europe, uh, Britain is on the edge of this huge continent, Eurasia, two continents, but really one. And Eurasia is t attached to Africa. So really that's that kind of half of the planet is one huge continent. And it's only a, what is it, about 19 mile, I think, uh, ferry from Britain to France. And then you're on the edge of that sort of vast landmass. <clears throat> so my plan was to try and cycle from home, from the little village I grew up in, 
back to that village uh, via the furthest away point. So I guess kind of the end of the road or the end of the earth uh, in each of the three continents, Europe, Asia and Africa. So the first target would be to get up to the top of Norway, uh, Norway uh, this little place called Nordcap up in the Arctic Circle. And then from there, find find a wiggly path somehow down to Singapore and then back across uh, Asia, down the east side of Africa to the bottom, up the west side and back home. Wow. That, so uh, do you remember the day that you try, got got your bike all the way home? Like, what, what does that even feel like? Like, especially from being on for so long. Mm, it was surreal. Um, there were sort of two finishes to the journey. I... While I was about halfway up Africa, um, my family started suggesting that we kind of set an arrival date. Um, and so I could sort of come back and have a homecoming party and friends and family could come to kind of, you know, welcome me back and celebrate the end of the journey. Um, but doing that in a village a hundred miles from London didn't seem the easiest way for a lot of my friends who by that point were working, you know, regular nine to five, five office jobs in London. So I set a sort of finishing line in London. And, you know, came back across my finishing line with a couple of police outriders that someone had arranged. They shut down quite a busy thoroughfare in, in, in the middle of London and sort of on this weird Thursday evening at 7pm, suddenly this usually very busy road was silent with just me and two police outriders with their their um, blue lights flashing. And I turned into this this domestic, uh, this residential street and yeah, there was you know, a hundred people there to welcome me back. And we had a big party. It was a lot of fun. It was, you know, dry, beautiful November evening. And then the next day I kind of, you know, wallowed in a horrendous hangover. And the morning <laughs> after that, I woke up and just started the final hundred miles down to the village where I grew up. And so that was a much more kind of muted experience. I suppose, you know, my, the, the last year of my life had been well, really the last four years, but just the last year had been cycling through jungles in Central Africa and across the Sahara Desert and rushing up through Spain and France. And suddenly I was just slowly pedaling down through very sort of bucolic British countryside under grey skies past sort of, you know, muddy plowed fields uh, and then cycled back into the village. A few people who were aware that I would be doing so kind of, you know, waved out their windows in the couple of villages before I got back. I think they were sort of aware through the local paper who I was. And then I got back to my parents' home and sort of, you know, had a, a cup of tea and, and a really long shower. And that was, that was kind of it. You know, it was anticlimactic, but a, a huge uh, relief. And by that point, I, although the whole journey was amazing and I regret none of it, by the end, I was quite ready to stop, at least for a while. Um, the last six months, I, I, about six months before I finished, I got quite ill in the Congo with typhoid fever and quite a severe uh, strain of malaria at the same time, which I'm told sort of by doctors since then could have been, you know, re I was very lucky to get hold of antibiotics because that could have been quite serious. Um, oh. You know, I was having intravenous drips twice a day for 10 days or something. Um, and then uh after that for the final six months i had some sort of gut problems that had me pass out a couple of times um so i you know it was it was i was ready to <laughs> to rest <laughs> definitely uh so wait where were you where were you what part of uh you you said you were in obviously africa when you when you got the malaria and typhoid uh, i was in uh drc uh or the congo yeah uh, <clears throat> what was that experience like i mean especially being so ill and getting the IV drips and everything like that. That'd be scary. Yeah, it was, um, 
I was with a friend at that point, uh, this, this guy who I met in East Africa, uh, while he was traveling on a motorbike, he came to join me just for three months as we crossed the Congo. Congo is huge. It's the size of Western Europe. You know, the, the, the distance from the westernmost to the easternmost point of DRC is the same as from London to Moscow. And it's the same from the Southern to the northernmost point. This country is absolutely vast. It spans most of Africa. Um, and we were right in the middle of that. We'd spent the previous month, uh, in a dugout canoe, like a hollowed out tree trunk, just going down this very little known river that had rapids and hippos and crocodiles and waterfalls. <laughs> and it was a really fraught time. We, you know, we capsized a lot, our boats sank a bunch of times. Um, we saw, we saw uh, a five meter crocodile that some villagers had just killed in a, in a very, it was really, really like very remote um there are no roads in that area no one else was stupid enough to travel up or down the river it was just us doing that um <clears throat> but we uh thankfully managed to find a road we we left the river and found a sort of a series of kind of sand tracks that we managed to follow um through the jungle for a while and eventually reached this town and by the time we arrived in the town i was well we we had been told by some guy we met in the south of the country that if we reach that town, we should go to the Greek Orthodox mission, the Greek Orthodox church that they have there, um, which is not something you necessarily expect to find in the middle of the Congo, a Greek Orthodox cathedral. In fact, it was, um, but we went there and we've been told to go and ask for, uh, father Stefan, I think it was. And we arrived outside having been given some directions and my mate went in to, to sort of, you know, by this point I knew I was ill. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was really unwell. And when you're unwell and having to you know, get on in a car even sucks, but if you're really unwell and you're still walking or cycling under burning heat, um, it's, it's worse. Uh, so my friend went inside to ask for this guy and he came out and I was just passed out in the sort of dust under a tree at, outside the entrance to the cathedral and, and the, the Greek Orthodox, uh, priest, uh, Congolese Greek Orthodox priest, uh, <laughs> said that he actually couldn't help us out, but his brother was kind of friends with the Catholic mission. And so we were driven across to the Catholic mission and, uh, they managed to hire a nurse who I, who I paid for, um, the best part of two weeks to come and administer, um, drugs. Uh, I mean, the sketchy thing was he would reuse needles, um, <laughs> like my, you know, my needles, but okay. they would just be kind of, he would, you know, he would pull the tube out of my arm and then just kind of hang it over the edge of the mosquito net and then come back later that day, pull it down. So, you know, sort of shake it off and then just plug it straight back into my arm. So I think the, the, uh, the risk of sort of, you know, sepsis or septicemia was probably greater than, <laughs> than dying from malaria at that point. But for, for, I mean, I, I could hardly walk. My friend had to, and we, we, we'd been for about six weeks. We, we had only passed through tiny little villages. We'd really struggled to get enough food. We'd lost so much weight. And suddenly we were in a, an actual city in the Catholic mission where they had a good kitchen that was well supplied and the city was connected by roads albeit not good ones but actual roads mud roads for the best part to the capital um quite far away uh, and so suddenly there was all this great food to eat and my friend would sort of sit next to my bed just stuffing his face with fried chicken and and you know potatoes and whatever else and i would just kind of watch enviously unable to really eat anything with no appetite it's weird being envious of someone eating when you have no appetite of course um and there was a, I was a little bit delirious for a while. And then there was a very strange sensation I had whenever I lapsed into sort of half dreams, half sleep, I would have this kind of, 
the sensation that all the flesh had withered away from my uh, legs and that when I sort of rolled over, my shins were just kind of bones scraping across each other. And, you know, some people have that strange kind of haptic reaction to, uh, for some people, my, myself, for instance, like fingers on cotton wool, it's kind of weird and soft or polystyrene. There's various like fabrics or materials that just set your teeth on edge and make your collarbones ache. Um, um you know, this sensation of these sort of bones rasping across each other, totally in my mind, in my sleep. Uh, that's the main memory I kind of hold from that, um, from that experience. <laughs> and, and, and still you continued to push on afterwards, which is incredible. Well, I was so close to the end by that point. I Six felt months, like I just, right? yeah. I mean, I remember getting to Cape Agulhas, which is the southernmost point of Africa. It's quite close to Cape Town probably a couple hundred miles from Cape Town. And I remember getting there and it was the third of these goals that I wanted to reach, Nordcap, Singapore, Cape Agulhas. And each one I turned around my bike. I remember at Nordcap turning around my bike and in my sort of mind's eye, I pointed the front wheel vaguely in the direction of Singapore and started cycling, even though it was kind of literally on the other side of the world. And Cape Agulhas, you know, I did the same in Singapore, pointed north, started cycling in. Cape Agulhas, I turned the bike around. I had this really strong sense of being on the home straight. Um, you know, if you if you're on uh, doing, you guys call it track and field or athletics, as we call it, and you run 400 meters, mm -hmm. which I've always thought is quite a sadistic distance to have to sprint. But there we go. Yeah. Uh, but you you know you get around that second bend in the track, and suddenly the sort of the finishing straight opens up before you. You can see the finishing line. You know you just got to keep going that little bit more, and you're going to get there. And it, weird as it sounds, I had that feeling when I turned my bike around at the bottom of Africa, I kind of thought, I, you know, I just, I've got to keep going that little bit more and I'll get there. And although that little bit more was a year and about 10,000 miles, as it turned out, I, I just kind of knew I was going to have to finish it. Um, in the event, sadly, after getting through the Congo, both Congos, there's two countries called Congo, Cameroon, I reached the Nigerian border and they'd just closed it because in, it'd been building for a few weeks by this point, but Ebola, had, this was 2014, Ebola had just kind of broken loose across West Africa. And suddenly all the borders just fell like dominoes. Um, and I sadly had to fly over a, a big whack of uh, West Africa. Um, there was just no other way through. I was, I, I was, I was hemmed in in Cameroon. To, to one direction, there was a Ebola. In another direction, there was a Islamist insurgency in Niger. And then the other direction in Central African Republic, there was a civil war. So it was just a total dead end. Um, and I had to fly out of that cul-de-sac, flew into Senegal and then carried on from there. Um, so, th I mean, there are a couple of instances on this four-year journey where I had to skip you know, bits. I had to take a domestic flight in Afghanistan, for instance, because there was an area that was still very much controlled by the Taliban. So it, it was by no means an unbroken journey, but to me, the journey was kind of about the experience along the way. So I'm, I'm not particularly fast. I wasn't chasing down any records or anything like that. No, no but still, it's a, it's a true testament to your, your sheer willpower to continue to push through. I want to take a step back real quick uh, and bring up, you said that you were traveling down the, the Congo, right? <laughs> Uh, and you were in a, um, in a canoe, right? Uh, did you know that there was like hippopotamus and uh, crocs and all that stuff in there and you still did it? Yeah. So when, when, um, when we entered the Congo in the South of the country from Zambia in, in a region called the copper belt, it's, there's a sort of the border between Zambia and DRC, uh, more or less runs along the sort of watershed of a, a, a area of highlands. They're not that high, but kind of hills. Um, 
And from there, we headed west through the Copper Belt onto less and less kind of, you know, smaller and smaller roads. Um, and the road we were following was heading into Angola, <clears throat> which we didn't have visas for. So we had conceived this plan that once we reached close to the Angola border, there was this river, the Lulua River, which is a tributary of the Kananga River, which is a tributary of the Kasai River, which is a tributary of the Congo River. Um, <clears throat> and we thought, well, if we get to that river, then we can buy a, a pirog, as they call it, which, you know, it is just a tree trunk hollowed out. They're really heavy. Uh, ours was about six meters long, I think. But we can buy one of those for presumably not very much and paddle down the river. And if we keep going with the river the whole way, we'll get to the capital. Although we, we knew that um, there was rapids and quite a lot of dangerous areas between here and there. But we thought we'll keep going, see how we get on for time. And maybe if we get to another road, we'll then carry on from there. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but while we, so it took about a week to buy one of these pirogs. We were in this small town on the, on the Lulua river and we asked around and we followed all these leads and there were loads of people who said, yeah, I could maybe sell this to you, but I just want to go fishing for a couple more days and get another big catch. And then I could sell it. Um, and at the end of a week, we finally managed to buy this quite knackered old, you know, it was not in a good shape. But we pulled it up onto the riverbank and we patched up some leaks and repairs. We sort of uh, essentially stapled um, some sort of plastic sheeting onto a couple of areas that were wearing thin. There were some areas that were still leaking, but we knew we could just slowly bail out over time as it filled up. Um, but meanwhile, the whole village just kind of gathered around us, tutting and shaking their heads. And, and they they warned us, you know, there are crocodiles, there are hippos, there are rapids and waterfalls. So, you, you know, if you guys don't drown, you'll be eaten. And either way, you'll be dead in a day or two. But, you know, we're kind of committed to the idea. And also, <coughs> pretty much wherever I went in the world, I would regularly hear people say, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I suppose, understandably, a lot of just caution, negativity out there about doing things that are, a little bit outside of the mold or don't fit the mold. I mean, it just with safety in general, like when I was in Romania, I remember the Romanian saying, oh, you're going to Bulgaria. That's crazy. They're, they're savages. And then I got to Bulgaria and they said, oh, you're going to Turkey. That's nuts. Those people are <laughs> mad. And then in Turkey, they said, you're going to Iran. The Mullahs will kill you. And then in Iran, they said, you're going, you know, just everyone was scared of the place next door. And it's sort of the same on a village scale in the Congo. You know, we, we were warned about, wildlife and there was wildlife you know we, we heard hippos a bunch of nights we only saw this one crocodile thankfully um we you know we were told that they are around where there's one there's definitely more um and we were warned about kind of you know dangerous people in neighboring villages or other villages further down the river and we had a couple of slightly sort of frosty run-ins but by and large we we got through absolutely fine people were, were pretty friendly we just sort of muddled our way through it that is incredible, man. I, you are definitely a very unique individual. Uh, most people in my life would, that I know would not even think about ever doing something like that. So it's, it's truly incredible. Um, the next thing I want to bring up is that you decided to go through Afghanistan, right? What was going through that back in 2014? What, what year was this? 20, that was 2012. 2012, shit. Uh, what was that experience like? I mean, especially a war-torn country. And I mean, I know you went through a lot of different places that had their own uh, issues going on, but somewhere like Afghanistan, like how do you even mentally prepare for that? Like were you nervous, scared? Um, 
I was nervous. I was excited as well. I think I was more excited because I was nervous and because I knew that it was hopefully not necessarily a foolish thing to do to go there, but definitely a slightly risky thing to do. I was, you know, the, the, the fact that the place has had so many problems makes it more interesting, I suppose, you know, it's, it's, you know, you turn on the news at night because you hear about all the, frankly, all the awful things that are happening in the world or in your own country, because that's more interesting than hearing about how, you know, Chippy, the local squirrel skateboarded down a street and everyone watched, uh, which is often, I believe in American news, they have a little happy bit at the end of the news uh, or a funny bit, which nowadays is just Britain. Look at them. But uh, I, so I managed to get a visa in Kyrgyzstan uh, for Afghanistan. And there was about it was nearly two months, perhaps, after I got my visa before I actually entered. So it was kind of building, you know, in the on the sort of in my mental periphery, I guess, on, on the horizon at the back of my mind was this kind of looming challenge. Um, and so 2012, obviously, a lot changed last year in Afghanistan. But back in 2012, the war was still very much on in the South. In fact, while I was there, a couple of my friends were fighting with the British army in, in Helmand province. And, you know, all advice, of course, said don't go. But I'd read that bits of the, the, the North are safe to visit. And I, I, I just kind of wanted to see, you know, what this place was actually like. I, I was sure that, you know, most Afghan people would just be normal people like anywhere else, despite the fact that their countries had, you know, such a shit time. Um, the crossing the border was kind of intimidating. I, you know, I arrived at first, well, actually I camped just a kilometer away or something in Uzbekistan from the border turned up, um, on the Uzbek side, they searched everything. They were, they really thoroughly went through all my bags. I had a big beard at the time. I think I was starting to look a little bit like someone that could just be a kind of generic Kurdish freedom fighter or something like that. I wasn't like cultivating this look. It's just kind of what I, <laughs> what yeah. I've come to look like. Um, I had like long hair. Um, I had bought a headscarf to cover up my sort of head and face as best I could once I got into Afghanistan. And I crossed, I cycled over this bridge, this iron bridge, the, the friendship bridge, which is, it's called the friendship bridge, but it's what the Soviets built to invade the country over, um, back in the eighties, uh, and over which they withdrew, um, uh, in 89. <clears throat> um, and the first town was quite a chaotic place. I didn't hang around. I cycled straight through at the border town. The border was all towers of sandbags, coiled razor wire, men with guns everywhere. The, the immigration guy in his little sort of hut, uh, more or less sort of laughed at me and said, good luck. Um, and I rushed through that town, pedaled out into the desert and it was probably four hours or so of cycling to get to the first town during which a, a, a convoy of Swedish tanks passed me in the other direction on the road. Um, and each one, you know, had a Swedish flag on the side and had a, a soldier sitting out the top. And although I was quite covered up to them, clearly a guy on a bicycle with panniers covering his face was a foreigner and they, you know, yeah. these guys, each of them, as they sort of slowly rumbled past, just sternly shook their heads at me. But then I reached Mazari Sharif, this first city, and I had arranged through a website called Couchsurfing to, to stay with, with a, a, a couple of nice people there. Um, I arrived and, you know, everyone was just really friendly. I went to the, the sort of the town's main, the city's main square, and I waited to meet this, this, uh, this guy there. And meanwhile, I got chatting to a carpet seller. Some bloke came and gave me a cup of tea. I managed to buy a local SIM card from someone just with a little sort of cabinet he had set up on the side of the street. 
and like just my shoulders dropped. There was still that kind of tension. I still knew it was a dangerous place. I still knew that there, you know, there were talibs in the area. There'd been a big blast. Actually, I saw the point, the sort of charred, scorched hole on the side of the street where this 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 um, uh, IED had gone off about two weeks earlier. Um, but generally, people were just getting on with life. They, they were all a bit nervous. There was kind of tension in the town because the Germans were about to withdraw about three weeks later. No. Yeah, three weeks later, they withdrew while I was in the country and they were the biggest presence in the north. So for them at that, that point, there was, of course, it's nothing like Kabul last year, you know, August, September last year. But there was that slight sense of who's going to fill this power vacuum when they go. Are the Afghan National Army guys going to be strong enough to hold? Obviously, 10 years later, it proved that they, they were not or, yeah. you know, that it's a complicated story. We, you know, we probably shouldn't go into it now. But um, <clears throat> it was, I mean, it was it was fascinating. People were really friendly. I met loads of great people, but everyone I spoke to bar none said, I want to get the fuck out of here. I have no interest in being here. And I remember one taxi driver, I spent a couple of weeks in Mazari Sharif, nearly maybe 12 days or something. And this taxi driver I was chatting to and via this bloke I was staying with, who was translating and he was very friendly and very chatty. Um, but via translator, he said, um, yeah, my, my, my life's greatest wish, my one dream is to, is to fuck a Western woman. And I was like, Jesus, that's, that's pretty <laughs> intense. Um, and you know, I thought, is this just, you know, some bloke with his, you know, libido wanting to play out some yeah. you know, fantasy, whatever it is. And then he elaborately said, because, uh, uh, Western men fucked my country. So I want to fuck one of their women. And it then became a much more kind of depressing, uh, still a horrifically misogynist yeah, sentiment, right. but a much more depressing, uh, you know, thought in that would Afghanistan, I mean, Afghanistan is now under the control of the Taliban. Again, it was a 20 year sort of failed experiment. We all know this Absolutely. would life have been better had they not gone in there in the first place. It's, I mean, it could be argued both ways. Uh, but it's, it's not very edifying thought. No, it's not. It's not. Have you ever um, read No Good Men Among the Living? No. Who Will wrote that? that up? Will you pull that up really quick, Tyler? Um, Tyler, it's called No Good Men Among the Living. It is by far one of the best books I have ever read um, on, on anything but on Afghanistan. And uh, he's pulling it up right now. Uh, it's, uh, no good man right there. Yeah. We just click on one of those things. Um, it, this is the book right here and it is by Anand, Anand Gopal. Yeah. Anand Gopal. And, it, it, <clears throat> and it's, it's uh, America, the Taliban and the war, uh, through Afghan eyes. And so what it does is it follows, um, uh, Anand goes out to Afghanistan and for a very long time interviews like a woman, uh, a uh, an ex-Taliban member that then becomes a Taliban member again, and um, just all these different individuals. And I'll just kind of read this. Uh, what does that say? Um, it's a breathtaking chronicle acclaimed journalist and on Gopal traces the lives of three Afghans caught in America's war on terror. He follows a Taliban commander who rises from, it's just hard for me to read that. Will you read that Tyler? Oh uh, yeah. <clears throat> he follows a Taliban commander who rises from scrawny teenager to leading insurgent. A U.S.-backed warlord who uses the American military uh, to gain wealthy and power, and a village housewife trife, trapped, trapped uh, between the two sides, <coughs> the cost of neutrality. 
Uh, through their dramatic stories emerges a stunning tale of how the United States had triumphed in sight in Afghanistan and then brought the Taliban back to the, from the dead. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that's um, it is by far one of the uh, just most riveting stories I've ever read. And it gives you a real understanding of the sheer terror and chaos um, that America brought to Afghanistan. And it's so crazy because in the beginning, uh, we were really accepted and, and things could have gone well and it could have changed everything. But we then put power in the hands of individuals out there that just wanted to destroy their enemies. And it wasn't about um, bringing a more peaceful, uh, more prosperous area. It was just, um, it, it was, it was amazing. So if you get a chance to read it. it yeah. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, as soon as you end up with a situation where general Dostum is the vice president, then, you know, things have really gone off the rails, just uh -huh. like straight up warlords were put into that. Exactly. Yeah. Or, I mean, or, or yeah, elected through a sort of limited and flawed democratic process. Who knows? But I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, well, it's something that I still find incredibly depressing as I'm sure lots yeah. of us do. And it's also, especially in Britain with the like complete sort of domestic political maelstrom that we're currently in the middle of, uh, Afghanistan's entirely fallen off the radar and, you know, more so perhaps because of the, 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 the invasion of Ukraine. But I mean, there's a, there's a humanitarian crisis unfolding there that yeah. is really, really bad and it's going to get worse and we're heading back into winter again and there's going to be just incredible starvation and, and no one's really looking at it. No, not at all. It's like we, we, we pull out with no plan and um, it's just sheer chaos and I feel terrible for the people over there. I mean, because just like you're saying, it doesn't matter where you go, like where you go, people are just people. It doesn't matter China, Afghanistan, America, uh, where Britain, wherever you are in the world, most people don't give a shit about all these other things. It's their, it's their lives that they have to worry about. You know, it's um, not all <clears throat> these geopolitical uh, hot, po hot points that are constantly blasted in the news 24-7. Um, so it makes sense that you going out there, uh, there, was, there was a lot of good. And, and I understand. Listen, man, I understand what that guy said. Like, I, I, it's, it's fucking crazy, right? But, um, yeah, what, what Westernized culture, American culture has done to those poor people it's just it's terrible and yes they're the taliban and all that do the same uh or do do similar things not at the level that i think americans have done uh over the past 20 years but um it's just it's a real sad situation and and i wish more people were talking about it mm, yeah no definitely i mean it's it's well yeah we, i mean we shouldn't wang on about afghanistan for too long but it's no, no, uh it's it's just it's, it's it's so incredibly nuanced uh it's 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 very easy to be totally isolationist about it, which is, you know, was, was Trump's approach, for instance, and, yeah. and say, well, you know, who are we to impose the ideas of women's rights and human rights on, but human rights are universal. Uh, but then people would potentially argue in reverse that, you know, universal uh, as, you know, agreed by a Western-led UN or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, um, I mean, there are, there are and were things that, you know, 
were right to be addressed the the method of doing it was completely wrong um, <clears throat> and the, you know the execution might have started off well and then gone way off track later on you know the consolidation and the kind of return you know the transfer of power back to afghan hands was was slow and clumsy and and the other thing is troops were sent out <clears throat> essentially on hearts and minds operations given no language training, no cultural training. You know, they, they were just, you know, ripped out of West Point or wherever, or British equivalents, dropped in the middle of the desert in a country with um, culture and language so incredibly alien to them. And inevitably, you know, I believe most of them tr tried their best to, to do what they could or, or did what they thought was the best thing to do. Right. But they were just not prepared and that's a that's a f administrative failing they were not prepared they didn't know how to do or what to do that you know it's just the whole strategy and approach was in my very humble opinion way off uh, i agree i i 110 agree um all right we'll, we'll get we'll definitely go back to your story um so going through afghanistan going through all of these experiences how especially with the first four and a half years um it's got to be <coughs> Like, I know your friend came out with you for three months, but, like, it's got to be lonely at times. Um, like, how do you even, like, contact your family, friends, back home? I know you said you got a SIM card. Uh, like, how do you deal with that, especially on long journeys? Uh, yeah, it was definitely lonely. Um, and that's something I struggled with a lot at the start through the first year in particular. Less so after that. I think I got used to it. I got better at sort of appreciating and enjoying solitude and, and my own company. Um, but there were times about seven months in, I spent a month and a half crossing Tibet in the middle of winter and didn't really have a conversation for the best part of two months. And that was hard. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I would go almost a week without sit, speaking a word out loud at all. But then as, as the journey wore on, I, you know, I got better at, sort of getting my fill of social interaction from strangers in you know, brief interactions here and there. And I, I didn't have a phone for the first couple of years um, and quite liked that aspect. But then uh, later I picked one up and then would use a local SIM card occasionally to kind of, you know, meet up you know to, to reconnect you know you meet someone in the market and they're really nice and they say oh hey take my number and then you meet up a few days later that's really nice yeah. um but with regards to my family i kind of emailed as and when i could uh used skype occasionally this was oh, that sort of window 2010 to 2014 was just a bit before the whole sort of smartphone revolution yeah. i think if anyone was to do the same trip again now they'd be able to quite easily particularly with the sort of proliferation of um wireless you know or phone signal 3g wow. 4g whatever in rural parts of the developing world i think nowadays you'd be able to kind of have a, a video chat on whatsapp with your family every night if you wanted to but that certainly wouldn't have been the experience i was particularly looking for no not at all and there's something really um beautiful about you know being detached from uh technology for so long uh mm. and 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 being able to continue to push yourself further and farther, especially during you know, some of those lonely periods. Um, when you got back, you know, a lot of times it's, it's two sides of the same coin, meaning like when people go to, to war, right? 
uh, and they're so ingrained in just that that's their life for four years, right? Two, four years, however long the tour is for them. Um, and then they come back. Reality is, is very hard to deal with. Um, being away from everything that you knew for so long and then coming home, did you deal with depression, uh, just different anxiety, any issues like that? Uh, not really. Um, I, I mean, firstly, and I'm probably a little better at this, this de- th- these days, but I had quite a sort of buttoned up upbringing. So if I had been sort of depressed, I, I don't think I would have said or thought about it. Um, but uh, I also think that the journey involved so much of constantly adapting to new circumstances. And I've been away long enough that by the time I came back home was another new circumstance that I was sort of, you know, flexible enough to quite quickly adapt to. I didn't hugely struggle and I managed fairly quickly sort of within about nine months to sort of build a life and a career that suited me that involved a reasonable level of travel, uh, but a, a little bit more kind of settled, you know, stability than I'd had before, but I mean, not massively, frankly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just a sort of, a, it was, a, it was a slight pivot, but I, I didn't, particularly i think everyone expects to struggle hugely after something like that but I, I actually found it quite seamless oh that's amazing um so when you get back right uh, you start to build this life for yourself and all that how then do you start to plan your next trips i i knew i wanted to keep doing journeys yeah and i wanted the next thing i did to be obviously shorter than four years but still something quite significant <clears throat> And I wanted to do something that had some sort of purpose to it, I guess. My, my previous journey, the purpose was very much kind of aimless wandering, essentially. Uh, but I wanted to do something with a bit of a theme. Um, and in 2015, um, it was 2015, 2016 was a really interesting time in the UK. There was well, we had, the, we had the build up to the Brexit referendum, which was a really interesting time where a lot of people spoke about the idea of sovereignty and the idea of cultural identity and continental identity. And at the same time, you had um, Trump uh, vying to be elected for the first time. And he went, uh, it's sort of, I think most people have almost forgotten this now, but almost his entire election campaign was based on building a wall or a fence yeah. along the Mexico border, which of okay. course was an absurd, doomed endeavor. Uh, and, and he quickly quietly dropped it i think yeah. uh, I, I believe a sort of a 50 mile a, uh, sorry didn't like like a, a two mile demonstration stretch was built and yeah, people tunnel tunnels under that or something yeah <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but um that kind of brought to mind the idea of, of borders and boundaries and i had been aware for a long time of the slightly odd nature of the kind of perceived border between europe and asia and um so i decided it could be interesting to travel the length of that supposed geographical divide uh and see what people thought of it who lived along it you know whether they were aware they lived on a supposed boundary um whether they whether that meant anything to them and whether they self-identified as european or asian or neither or both or just russian or kazakh or georgian or turkish or whatever um so i decided to try and travel the length of this border is about five and a half thousand miles. Um, the first 
sort of section, the first leg was the length of the Ural Mountains uh, by ski. So starting up on the Arctic coast of Russia, way up in the north in, in, in winter, in February, in the Arctic, sort of minus 40-ish conditions. Wow. Um, ski for three months. I did this with a, with a friend um, from America. Uh, we skied for three months down through the mountains through like there was just no one there it was totally empty at one point we went a week without seeing not, not no people but also no traces of people no buildings no fences no settlement nothing um then we kayaked uh in a tandem kayak for two and a half months from the southern foothills of the ural mountains uh 1500 miles down this river called the ural river uh, which flows out into the Caspian Sea from where we picked up bicycles and then cycled the final two and a half thousand miles uh, through the Caucasus and uh, along the Black Sea coast in Turkey and finished in Istanbul at the end of that. Uh, and by the end of it, basically no one we spoke to gave a shit about this idea of a border <laughs> at all. So although it was arguably a futile endeavor from that perspective, I do now feel, and I'm speaking kind of, you know, in brief here, but uh, I do regularly give sort of hour long lectures essentially, and, and put forward a case for doing away with the concept of Europe as a continent, because it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a divisive concept and people in Asia don't really think of it in the same way as we do in Europe. We have this quite sort of, um, uh, you know, exceptionalist view of ourselves, um, much like perhaps the U S oh, regards sure. to, to Mexico yes. or whatever. Of yeah. And, and in Britain, we've taken it one step further. Absurdly for the last six years, we've decided that we are exceptional, exceptional <laughs> compared to all these incredible advanced, um, you know, social democracies in the, in the Western North of, um, of Europe. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the next big journey and that took about uh, eight months. <clears throat> that, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. On um, I, I have this like philosophy that, yeah, borders are freaking crazy. They're gonna we're gonna look back a thousand years from now, um, when we're all cyborgs or AI or whatever the heck we are at that point, um, and realize that we are all human beings. Like that's who we are, and these borders all separated by a series of firewalls. Yeah, and and our and our our monkey brains uh, don't allow us to look past how far we have come as a civilization. It's, it's just not <laughs> to think that uh, these made up walls and borders uh, define us and it causes so much pain and so much strife. And um, although as a civilization, we've advanced so much, we still have these like tribal brains that we cannot see past. And, 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 and all nations are flawed for sure. But um if you look down at what we are, we're all humans. And if we work together, we can achieve so much better, so much greater at such a faster rate. Um, and if there really are aliens out there, which I do believe, they uh, have become far more advanced than, than we are and, and probably have a, a similar mindset uh, like we're talking about right now. Or at least I'd like to think that. Yeah. And if there are aliens out there, then we're the aliens as well. Yeah, uh, of course, of course, we're we're all aliens, right? Um, so yeah, definitely, I, I I see how you go through that journey for eight months, and no one gave a shit. I I totally get that. Uh, that being said, what was it like now experiencing a long journey, not four and a half years, but eight months, but having someone by your side compared to doing it by yourself? Definitely different. 
Um, and we didn't know each other particularly well when we started, um, which made it, I guess, a little bit more challenging. Um, but by and large, yeah, we got on well. We worked well as a team. There were a few, yeah, a few times when we kind of fell out for a brief stint. Um, <clears throat> but it was it was surprisingly cohesive. Yeah, it was. I, I think I'm a pretty good team player, generally speaking. Um, it's perhaps, I mean, that, most of the things I've done, most of the journeys I've undertaken have been by myself. But I think more for the reason that often it's a bit of a chore to find someone else who wants to do these things. So I'm quite happy just to go off and do them myself rather than spend, you know, an extra year casting around trying to find someone who's interested. Yeah, definitely. Um, you said at the first leg of the trip that you were skiing. How, what did they, like, how did that even start? Where did you fly to first? And then how you skied for, for so long? We, uh, we flew to Moscow and then took a 48, 45 hour train north, uh, northeast up to the end of the tracks in this, uh, city called Vorkuta, which is the capital of Komi Republic, um, which is a big sort of province in the north of Russia. Um, and then from Vorkuta, we tried, uh, from there, it was about 150 miles to the coast, 130 miles perhaps. Um, but there was no way to get to the coast. There were no roads. It was just snow-covered tundra. <coughs> um, so we tried We tried to just ski to the coast. Um, so we took an extra bunch of supplies, um, ski up to the coast, then turn around, ski from there into the mountains. Um, but as it happened, after about five days, four or five days of skiing, uh, I had a issue with my feet my boots didn't really fit properly and i i my, I, my feet got quite i don't know I've, I've never really seen blisters that bad before uh you know kind of that sort of size uh just oh, wow. open raw wounds uh so we then skied back to Vorkuta, and while i was kind of recuperating and fixing my issue with my boots we were back in town for perhaps a week um while we were there we met someone who said they could give us a lift to the coast um and they did so in a tank um, so a, a decommissioned old Soviet military tank, uh, drove us in the course of about 10 hours up to the coast, dropped us off. They headed on along the coast to, um, go and trade fish, uh, with an indigenous village, I think. Uh, and then we just, you know, from the coast turned around and started skiing up into the mountains. So you took a tank for 10 hours. What was that experience like? Well, outside it was probably minus 30, well, in Celsius, minus 35, minus 40 degrees. Uh, inside the tank, it was unbearably hot, just an absolute furnace. So we, you know, we sat just baking inside this thing in quite a cramped space. Meanwhile, <clears throat> the guy, there, there was a convoy of about three or four tanks all going together up to this place to trade fish. Um, meanwhile, the guy driving our tank, you know, t t we could just see his body, you know, what cranking at the levers, his head was out the sort of porthole, whatever, yeah. out the hatch. Um, and every now and again, he would sort of, you know, duck down, look in and say, you know, is everything okay? You know, for Malna? And we'd say, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. But every time he did, his face would be just contorted into this kind of frozen position with uh. ice all over him. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, that was kind of a novel experience. <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Did, like to be able to take the tank and everything like that, did you have to like pay the guy? How did you even set that up? <laughs> We tried to pay him, but he, he wouldn't accept any money. He, you know, he said, you guys are crazy and good luck to you. And that was, that was it. Wow. Wow. When gearing up for these types of trips, do you try to like learn the language? Uh, how do you communicate? Um, yeah. I mean, for, for that journey, the vast majority of the journey was through Russian speaking countries. So the first five months were in Russia, then a month in Kazakhstan, then 
two or three weeks in Azerbaijan, then a few weeks in Georgia and then Turkey briefly at the end. Um, I had picked up half decent Russian. I'd made a bit of an effort to learn Russian in, uh, the central Asia, you know, the Soviet former Soviet States, central Asian republics, uh, when I was on my bicycle journey a few years earlier. Um, so I had a sort of grounding in Russian, which I've built on since then. And, and, uh, yeah, been back to Russia a couple of times since then. Wow. That's uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. So then you, <coughs> you, come, back, you come back from this trip. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask is it being so cold, how the heck do you even stay warm? Especially like having to camp outside and all of these things, it's just gotta be freaking freezing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously lots of clothes and if you're wearing the right clothes and you, you keep moving and when I say skiing, I really mean walking with skis on it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's heavy. Um, yeah, you keep moving, you generate heat that keeps you warm. Um, the trickiest times, I guess the first thing in the morning where you've got to kind of wake up, eat food and pack up the tent. And when you stop walking at the end of the day, setting up the tent, um, particularly if it, you know, we, we saw so little sunshine up there. It was windy all the time. It was a real hellscape, frankly. Um, and I mean, at night, just, you know, a big, decent sleeping bag, although I, I slightly, uh, misjudged that and the sleeping bag i ended up taking on that trip was uh it was rated down to minus 12 celsius um and it's kind of extreme rating was minus 30 but we were sleeping in minus 40 regularly and when it's the extreme rating that means you will survive but you get you're going to be cold um mm -hmm. so i you know I, I didn't sleep that well for, for those three months often did you guys share a tent <coughs> or did you guys have your own tents no, no, we shared a tent um, and that helps as well. And it means you can share the, you know, at the end of the day, particularly when it's windy, you've got to get the tent set up straight away, get inside, and then you might be inside the tent for the next 15, 16 hours. Um, or, you know, on days where it, it was just a storm, sometimes we'd be in the tent for two or three days, you know, just kind of trapped. Um, and so it's a case of sharing the cooking duties and, you know, every now and again, if it's really windy, you need to go outside with a shovel and shovel the snow away from the tent. So the tent doesn't slowly get kind of buried and collapsed yeah. under the weight of the snow. So sharing the same tent means you can share all those duties and you kind of have to work half as hard sometimes. That's so cool, man. I, I just absolutely love how you just continue to push regardless of what is thrown your way. So you get back from this trip. Is that when you wrote your first book? Yeah. I, oh, I'd written it before that trip. But I didn't publish it till after I got back. Um, and that was about the first half of the bicycle journey. So that book's called Through Sand and Snow. And that's very much a sort of, I suppose, rite of passage or coming of age story. It's about setting out into the world, you know, in, in your naive, hubristic youth. Um, and it's, you know, of course, it's about all the places I pass through and the people I meet. But it's also a journey about kind of, you know, getting out into the world. Wow, that's awesome. Did you do an audio book for it? I did. Yeah. Did you uh, read it? Of course. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, um, you, you get back from this trip, you go through all that. What was the next, uh, what next, what was the next journey? What year is this around? Like you wrapped that up in 2016. That, so that ski journey was 2017. 2017. Um, so the bulk of 2017 was on that journey. Uh, 2018, what did I do? 2018, 2018, I actually ended up just doing quite a lot of, um, sort of tour guiding around Central Asia. Um, so taking groups uh, up to the stands, to Iran and to Afghanistan again, 
and then 20 early 2019 <clears throat> i went to papua new guinea for a couple of months and climbed uh, the country's two highest mountains uh hiked through for a few weeks through the jungle and then pack rafted um sort of inflatable kayak um a few hundred miles down the country's longest river ending up at the coast uh and then came home and you did it all by yourself this one I did largely by myself, but some sometimes when I was hiking through the you know through the jungle in the highlands, going village to village, in each village I would say, "Who wants to guide me to the next village?" I'd pay them for the day or a couple of days, whatever it might be, and the next village I'd pick up someone else. Largely because I mean they're just tiny little footpaths that if you if your eyes not trained, you just lose them straight away, and if you get lost in that jungle, you're not coming out. Um, but these guys, you know, would know the way sometimes we'd, you know, we'd go wrong. We'd have to backtrack for an hour or so until we find this like tiny little sort of, you know, trail that I mean, they were really, really hard to see these trails. Um, and some of them would grow over quite easily. Um, so without a guide for some of it, I would have been pretty stuffed. Wow. That's incredible, man. And how, what is Papua New Guinea <laughs> like the, the people, the culture, all of that? Um, it's a fascinating place, really, really unusual. Um, for starters, there are about 750 languages. Um, but this is a country with 10 or 11 million people. So historically people have lived in such isolation that the, the terrain is so rugged, so hard to, to travel through that you, you have instances where tribes lived in a valley in isolation for centuries, maybe millennia without really having any contact with the neighboring valley. They were just, you know, in some places they lived totally isolated. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of violence. It's a very dangerous place. Um, tribal violence, sexual violence. Um, the towns are kind of plagued with gangs of, of sort of guys who turn up from the villages thinking the town is some promised land. And then when they get there, they realize that actually it's very hard to survive because you no longer have a patch of garden as you know, as you do in the villages, you can't grow your own food. So you need money to buy food to survive and there's no work. Um, so there's, you know, everyone's got a sort of a two foot long machete blade. Everyone's walking around with those all the time. Um, there's now quite a lot of guns in the country. So that's all the negatives. Of course, the, the homicide rate in the capital is, I believe the world's highest. Um, so it is a very dangerous place, but just culturally it's fascinating. You know, these, these, tribes that have remained untouched for just so long and the the highlands where there are a few million people living were believed uninhabited until the 1930s when uh, some people flew a light aircraft over it and realized that people lived up there and it turned out there was a million people living up in the mountains on this island with no idea that they were on an island and that there were people living on the coast of that island let alone that beyond that island was the whole rest of the world you know they just thought they'd you know, where they lived surrounded by these mountains was the entire world. Wow. Um, so, and totally stone age, uh, societies. Um, and yeah, I've, I just, the place is fascinating. People are very, very frank, friendly, open. Um, the, the kind of lingua franca that has sprung up is a sort of pigeon English. So you can talk to people pretty much anywhere and, you know, learn their stories. So yeah, it's a really interesting place. Wow. That's cool. Did you ever, um, with, you know, homicide and everything that being so high, were you ever like, uh, afraid? Did you run any, any sticky? <coughs> um, there was one time in a small town in the highlands, Goroka, when it was a Sunday 
and I, I was staying with this Australian for a couple of nights. This guy, um, he was working for a um, sort of zoological based charity. And he, uh, sorry, I went into town to go to the, the cash machine, the automatic bank, which was kind of in a booth. The bank was obviously shut, but there was sort of a booth attached to the bank where you could go in um, get money out and then come out. And when I came out and I'd only taken out about probably $40 worth of, of, uh, New Guinea and Kina. And when I came out, these three guys with their machetes, rascals, as they're called, um, came and sort of stood around me and they said, Hey boss man, uh, can we have some money? And I said, ah, sorry, I, you know, I need it. And they said, Oh, but, uh, we have the bush knives. So give us the money. And at that point, you know, you kind of have to either give them money or say something that's going to help. Um, and it weirdly, it came to me to say, um, <clears throat> what day is it? And they said, uh, well, it's, it's Sunday boss. Everyone calls white people boss. It's uncomfortable, but there it is. Um, and I said, yeah, exactly. This is, uh, this is the, the day of the Lord. It's a day for praying, not for robbing. And they all went, oh yeah, sorry. And just walked away. <laughs> Um, so the missionaries have really gone to town in Papua New Guinea. So it's, a, it's a, it's a very Christian country. And I think this just kind of, you know, to them felt like their parents scolding them for, you know, being bad people or something. And, and they left me alone. No way. That is, uh, <laughs> I can't believe that worked. That's awesome. I mean, it had to be a very scary situation. Uh, but looking back at it, <clears throat> you thought really quickly on your toes and you made it, you made it work, man. Well, if they'd pushed back at all, then they would have got that money. Oh, for, um, sure. for I mean, sure. I I wasn't even scared in the moment. I remember thinking, you know, they're not going to do anything to me. You know, if, if I have to give them the money, I'll give them the money. It's twenty five pounds or whatever. You know, it's nothing. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that was uh, a lucky escape. <laughs> but beyond that, I didn't I didn't have any difficult encounters with people. Um, I saw a couple of crocodiles while paddling down this river. I nearly got drowned in some rapids at one point. That was a little bit frightening. Um, but by and large, I was all right. I love how like you just kind of roll these things off. You're like, I just I almost drowned it in a you know rapids, but it's not that big of a deal. Most people that'd be like one of the most scarring things that they've ever gone through in their entire life. But you're just so used to it at this point. Um, so you get back from this trip, right? Uh, when did you start? Uh, what was your next trip after that? Because this is like 2020 now. Yeah, so early 2020, I went back to Papua New Guinea um, with a view to doing some research for a potential documentary that I won't really elaborate on now because I'm hoping to get back to that at some point soon. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to keep that under my hat. But after about three weeks out there, suddenly the entire world shut down. Um, and I was, I was already in quite a remote area of the Highlands. So I scrambled to get a local sort of bush taxi that got me to a slightly bigger town that had an airport and I got the last seat, I believe on a domestic flight to the capital. And then one of the last seats on what I think turned out to be the second last flight off the Island for about five months. Um, so I just got out in time, got back to London and, uh, and then was you know here through, through the many lockdowns that we enjoyed and yes. endured in the UK. Um, so yeah, that was, that's a journey that I would like to get back to at some point soon, but, uh, haven't found the time yet. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. You just did that. that was at the beginning of the pandemic. So you just kind of made your way out. It, it, you had to definitely be a uh, stir crazy during all the lockdowns and everything like that. Um, 
how did you, what was like, you, you had another trip after that, correct? Yeah. Um, well, March, March, 2021. So I think it might have even been a year to the day after I got back from New Guinea. Uh, I went with a friend to Kyrgyzstan for, well, I went out earlier. I was there for, I think about six, seven weeks. And I went and did some solo ski touring up in the mountains, then a bunch of hiking. And then the last two weeks, this friend came out and joined and we went way up into the mountains, climbed to the top of the glacier, then climbed an unclimbed mountain, came back down and then flew back to the UK. Uh, but then a year after that, so earlier this year, uh, I went out to Siberia, Northeast Siberia, um, and spent a couple of months hiking up in the Arctic, uh, again in winter, um, along the surface of frozen rivers and then uh, over the surface of the frozen Arctic ocean up along the coast, um, <clears throat> through this area called, uh, Yakutia or Sakha Republic, which is the coldest inhabited region on earth incredibly sparsely inhabited as well. There's hardly anyone there, but the people who do live there are kind of indigenous, uh, you know, Asiatic Arctic peoples, you know, traditional Siberians, you know, they, they do live largely in villages, but they still herd, you know, Siberian ponies or reindeer. Um, and so I went up to basically trek village to village. It's about a week's walk between villages, uh, just walking up the river was frozen about two meters thick. Um, really cold temperatures. The coldest I had was a hundred was a uh, minus 49 Celsius, which I think it's like minus 70 uh, Fahrenheit, something like that. It's okay. cold. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I did that for a couple of months and then reached my sort of end destination up on the coast. And there I was <laughs> arrested, um, because in the time that I've been, hiking, uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine and the situation, and I've been aware of this, the situation had just got more and more serious. And by the time I reached the finishing line, the Russians were just not happy having a foreigner, a Westerner walking around in remote areas. Um, so they bought a bunch of spurious, uh, accusations of illegal journalism and photographing military sites against me, uh, took me to court, uh, found me guilty. And I spent uh, four weeks, uh, locked up before they finally, thankfully deported me. Uh, what, and that was back in May. What was that like going through that experience? How did that even take place? Like why were you getting locked up? I mean, just because you were a foreigner and the war, uh, pretty much. Yeah. I have no doubt that had the war not happened, I, the invasion, then I, um, I, you know, I wouldn't have had any problems. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it was, I mean, it's a police state now. It's a very suspicious place. That kind of Soviet era paranoia has just hurtled back into the society there. The police are very fidgety and jumpy. Um, I reckon some of them probably genuinely thought I may have been spying. Um, they, the allegations they brought against me more or less covered espionage, you know, photographing military sites is in, in a remote area of Siberia is, is kind of serious. Um, so it was, you know, it was frightening. There was a while where I was fairly convinced I might get a 15 year sentence. Um, fairly convinced is misleading where I thought there was a good chance I could get a 15 year sentence. Um, but, uh, thankfully, I still don't really know why, but after a month they deported me and they, they were, they were not wise to, but, you know, by their own metric, they had a, you know, a, a 
decent prisoner who they could have swapped at some point for yeah. some Russian citizen um, or some, I mean, that <clears throat> this is a bit different because this is directly in the war, but five British um, POWs were released, were swapped. Uh, the Russians swapped them for some Russian POWs uh, a few weeks back. Um, so potentially they could have had an extra bit of, you know, sort of bargaining fodder for a situation like that if they'd held on to me for longer. Thankfully they didn't. I think it probably worked in my favor that I was quite so far away. You know, I was, if you go to Pyongyang and then go about two and a half thousand miles north, that's kind of where I was wow. really uh, sort of six time zones from Moscow, closer to, uh, you know, much closer to Anchorage than to Moscow or Kiev. Um, and probably about twice as close to the North Pole as to Moscow. So like a really just far away. And I think the distance of that probably worked in my favor to some extent. Yeah, I'm sure if you were in Moscow, it'd be a completely different story. <clears throat> um, when they first arrested you, right, um, did they have access to all of your stuff? Like, I mean, because I know you were taking pictures and stuff, but not for the... Yeah, I mean, they, they, they had access to my uh, phone my camera thankfully i managed to keep my journal more or less hidden from them um and there were a few sd cards i've been recording audio for a podcast that i think is going to come out next month <clears throat> a series of them rather um and that involved a lot of my thoughts about where i was the people i was meeting but also about the political situation in ukraine or the the military situation um, and the SD cards for those I hid and thankfully they never got hold of those. I mean, they, they were in their possession for a month, but they, they never found them. They were kind of quite, quite well hidden. Uh, had they found those, I think I would be in a lot more trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, cause like usually like when you go to jail, especially like in the States or whatever, they search all of your stuff. How are they able not to find your SD card or your journal? Uh, well, my journal, when they checked me into the prison, <laughs> check-in's a nice little hotel type term, isn't it? Yeah. But when they kind of um, processed me, uh, they, um, uh, they, yeah, they were searching through all my stuff. And while they were doing that, I just took my little journal. It was just a small notebook. And I just slipped it in the back of my like trousers, like in, my, in my underpants. Um, and thankfully, they didn't frisk me on the way into the cell. <clears throat> They did then for the following month, frisk me every day and search the cell. But by that point they were looking for a uh, string or shoelaces or a belt or anything that you could like hang yourself with essentially, uh, or, you know, weapons, sharpened metal, anything like that. You know, they were looking for contraband. Yeah. So I just hid this journal kind of more or less in plain sight among a small number of books that a friend managed to deliver to me. Um, the SD cards, I unscrewed a. You know, when you've got like an, an adapter socket plug to, you know, adapt from a US plug to a UK plug, for instance, I had one of these for Russian to British and I unscrewed and opened that up. Uh, it was white plastic. And then in little scraps of white paper, I folded up these little micro SD cards and slipped them inside. So even if someone had opened them, they opened the plug, they wouldn't necessarily have seen them or certainly not right away. I assume that they never opened the plug. It looked quite innocuous particularly when it was in a bag that had a GPS unit and my camera and other things that to their eyes were much more interesting. Wow. Wow. <coughs> Time to do all of that. Um, well, I, I, I uh, as the situation kind of ratcheted up in Ukraine, um, I realized that having this thing on me, you know, I, I, 
I knew that the authorities were interested in me. I didn't know they were going to arrest me, but I thought it was plausible that I could get searched at some point. You know, it seemed sensible to as as and when I filled or finished an SD card, it seemed sensible to hide it. So I so I just started doing that quite early on. Wow, that, that is amazing. Um, you know, going through that, like, were you even able to like reach out to your family? Like, did they know what was going on? That'd be so scary. My uh so i was allowed on mondays wednesdays and fridays i was allowed my phone for sort of 12 15 minutes uh during which time i'd make a you know call on whatsapp to my girlfriend who was kind of managing things um in conjunction with a couple of my family members back home so she was kind of liaising with the uk embassy in moscow with the uh various people who knew who knew what was what um and with a, a, a local russian lawyer that we managed to hire which didn't really come to anything, I'm afraid. The appeal was rejected. Um, <clears throat> so I'd have these brief phone calls with her. We kept my mum in the dark. Um, she knew that something wasn't quite right. She knew I was in a bit of trouble, but she thought I was kind of just staying in a hotel and didn't have access to internet, I think. But her, my, my gran, her mum was was dying. She was on her deathbed at the time. So it just seemed best to keep, you know, keep that, um, keep that off her mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. Um, when when you were locked up for those four weeks did they did they feed you did they did anyone try to fuck with you like yeah they 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 fed me um i wasn't ill-treated i was never beaten i was never you know abused in any way it was warm enough um they actually i mean it was it was plenty warm enough the the because in yakutsk winter temperatures regularly plunge down to like minus 50 um that's celsius again uh, the windows are triple glazed, which is kind of unheard of in much in most yeah. of the world. Um, but uh, meals were fine. There was plenty of food. It was just, well, not plenty, but enough. Um, most, I mean, probably 60% of what I ate was just raw, plain white bread. Um, and, the, you know, no, there was never any butter or anything. Breakfast was plain porridge. Lunch was usually cabbage soup. Dinner was usually kind of rice with a few strands of tin vegetables, but every meal came with bread and uh, plain black tea. Wow. Were you in a cell by yourself? The first two weeks I shared with a Ukrainian man and a man from Kyrgyzstan, um, which, you know, like we, we could communicate, we chatted a bit, but quite quickly, you know, you could sort of run out of conversation. We had very little in common. Yeah. We got on fine, um, but the second two weeks I was shoved in a cell by myself and I actually much preferred that. Um, I could sort of, you know, I could do exercise in my own time. I wasn't going to be getting anyone's way, pacing back and forth through the cell, which I'd do for, you know, three hours a day or something. Um, yeah, I, I actually preferred being by myself in that situation. Did you think that you were going to get locked up for the 15 years? At times I felt certain of it. Um, sometimes I just felt it was a possibility and sometimes I felt optimistic. Yeah, I'm going to get out of here soon enough. Um, you, you know, you kind of oscillate back and forth between these different thoughts on a sort of quite quick basis. How did you manage not to fully break down and lose your shit? Cause, um, that has to be I, terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have a particularly good answer to that i suppose patience i've been through quite a lot of shit 
you know, through the various journeys I've, you know, like self-inflicted <laughs> through the various journeys I've undertaken. So I, I guess I am quite resilient by this point. Um, you know, the more stresses you undertake, the the hardier you become, I guess. So it was a case of just trying to focus on what I could control, you know, so I just kept myself busy. You know, I was doing lots of push-ups and sit-ups and reading a lot. Um, I had a Rubik's Cube, so I did a lot of that. Um, nice. Did you finish I it? Say, I had a, uh, oh, yeah, I can do them in sort of under two minutes now. Um, nice. You... Uh, there was a window so I could stare out the window. I could see people in the distance on the balconies of apartment blocks kind of going about their lives. And that was kind of some form of escape and entertainment. Um, yeah. What was your and then quite a lot of just like lying, staring at the ceiling. I don't doubt that. What was your girlfriend thinking? She had to be scared shitless. <clears throat> yeah. I actually think that that period when I was in the cell was probably might well have been worse for her than for me. Um, yeah. I had helplessness, which I wouldn't say I submitted to it, but you kind of accept it to some extent. You know, I, I had no agency in anything. Whereas she, at the same time as working a busy job, was busily trying to do whatever she could to try and help, you know, and talking to all sorts of experts who mostly had quite bleak outlooks for my, you know, um, prospects. Um, so I, th I actually think it was, it was, probably harder on her than on me i get that i get that now when you were about to get released how did that all go down well they told me one day tomorrow you're being deported um and so i was uh flown to moscow first in handcuffs with guards on a commercial flight um siberia airlines and then in moscow whacked in a sort of holding room not, not locked but still handcuffed until check-in for my flight which <coughs> to deport me to the uk had to go via a third country because there are no direct flights anymore um because of sanctions um so i had an emirates flight via dubai and when it's time to check in they took me to check in then they took me to customs and immigration and a swat team and a small troop of policemen kind of marched me through immigration and then I was uncuffed and I was given my phone back and I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm done. It's over. I'm going home. I'm sort of through immigration. I'm kind of in some sense out of Russia, yeah. not, not technically, but in some legal sense, I suppose. Uh, and then quickly I was like diverted into this like extra security, um, process where they got hold of all my bags again, went through everything, found my journal, which thankfully I'd thought to redact when I was in the cell. So I'd crossed out lots of stuff. There's lots of black scribbled pen all over it. Um, but they got my phone and they went through that for ages and ages and ages, went through all my messages, went through all my photos, uh, went through my, and, and now I was in Moscow. So it felt more serious yeah. and they held me there about five, six police officers for about an hour and a half, looking through everything, asking a lot of questions, getting more and more kind of severe, uh, to the point where I thought, well, my flights in you know, like five, 10 minutes, I'm, I'm not getting out of here. And if I go into a cell here then I don't think I'm going home anytime soon. Um, but then with just, you know, two, three minutes to spare before my flight, suddenly they said, right, pack everything up. And they ran me through the airport, put me onto the Emirates flight, the door shut behind me and the plane took off and, and I was free. Um, that's the time when I finally broke down is when I actually got, when the plane took off, I finally kind of, you know, fell apart. 
actually while the plane was still very steeply sort of climbing, I took off my seatbelt, ran into the, uh, it was one of these giant A380s or whatever, ran, ran into the bathroom, which is like a sort of suite on this yeah. big Emirates flights, um, and sort of standing at a funny angle to, you know, stay upright because the plane was banking yeah. you know, flying so steeply i kind of just cried into a mirror for about a minute while some air steward hammered on the door saying please sir you have to come out <laughs> yeah so that was um that was that was when it was truly all over holy crap man i don't even know what to say about that story you everything that you have gone through in your entire life uh to then lead up to this moment it had to be so freaking just terrifying and now looking back at it like you're so fortunate and so lucky that you got mm -hmm. out man like you know we got a britney griner over there right now still and um yeah and you know that could have been you as well you know and yeah uh yeah just knock on wood man thank, thank god um so you get back from this experience right what's the next steps for you man what's the future look like um, well, I'm sort of back to normal life for the time being. So I'm doing quite a lot of, you know, present, giving quite a lot of presentations, public speaking. I've started writing a book about this, uh, journey to Siberia, um, which will be, you know, uh, not just about this final month, but yeah. also about the first two months of the journey. Um, and the kind of the build in Russia of, you know, the, you know, just the kind of the rising storm, you know, the, the wheels of history turning. Um, and I've, I've told myself, I'm not going to commit to a next trip until I finished at least the first draft of that book. So for the time being, I've got a few sort of ideas percolating, bouncing around my brain, but, uh, nothing concrete yet. Wow. That's amazing. Um, before we wrap this up, I want to ask you what was going on the Joe Rogan experience like? Um, surreal and yet strangely normal because I mean, it was surreal to, you know, flying just for two days to Texas and back, which you know, doesn't feel like a great carbon footprint thing, to yeah. be honest. But, um, you know, and you go into the studio and it's, you know, it's, it's all very other these huge security dudes with pistols tucked in the front of their belts wandering around. And that was all kind of surreal. And then once you get in the studio and start talking to him, it's just, you're just having a long form conversation with a bloke, much like you and I are yeah. now. And, um, it, you know, that becomes quite normal. It's, I suppose it's, it's, it's unusual to speak to a total stranger for three hours nonstop. Um, but you know, he's, he's a very generous host. He's a good listener, a good conversationist. And you know, I, it, it, it felt pretty sort of normal. Wow. How did that experience even happen? Um, I had been invited to go on back in 2020 and, uh, with COVID I couldn't get over. So we kind of, you know, mothballed it. But then when I got out of Russia, I, I sent them an email saying, well, you know, this just happened. So maybe we should pick up the idea again. And they said, yeah, let's go for it. And so a few days later, I, I think I'd only been out of Russia for three weeks by the time I went on it. So it was all still quite sort of raw and actually from my perspective, quite a handy time to kind of, I think we spoke for about an hour about Russia, yeah. quite a handy way to kind of lay down while it was all still fresh in my mind, a long form kind of, you know, telling of those events because, yeah. uh, my memory's not great. So I can refer back to that <laughs> podcast now to kind of, you know, refresh my memory. Yeah. You did a, you did a really good job and it was a really good episode. Um, and, oh, and, thank you. Yeah. Well, hundred percent, man, hundred percent. Uh, you're a natural at it. Um, uh, one more thing I wanted you to bring up is the other book that you came out with in, cause you came out one in 2017 and then one in 2019, correct? Yeah. So what's the, so there's, 
the second book, which is called On Roads That Echo, is actually the second half of that long bike journey I told you in the first, you know, that four-year bike journey. Yeah. Um, so those two books are kind of uh, prequel and sequel. Um, I think after this Russia book, I'll probably write something about Papua New Guinea. Uh, I'm always a little bit behind with books. They take that bit more time to kind of, and, you know, to build the time and space to, to get that writing done is hard when you've got all these other sort of travel dreams, um, you yeah. know, floating around. But uh, yeah, those, those two books are both available on Amazon and Audible and Kindle and the book depository and various websites, my website, wherever else. Um, I have a cold at the moment, so I, I can promise your listeners that my uh, <laughs> my narration style for the audio books are better than it might appear right now. My throat is, uh, my voice is not particularly normal right now. No, it sounds um, good. Yeah. It sounds good. Um, where can uh, people find your information? Instagram, social, all that shit. Uh, yeah, my Instagram and Twitter handles are at CW Explore, Charlie Walker, CW Explore. Uh, Facebook, the same. My website is cwexplore.com. Those are the places to see what I'm up to. I love that, man. One last question. All right. Do you believe in aliens? Uh, you know, balance of probability suggests that there must be uh, life out in the universe. Whether or not there's any intelligent life is a slightly less clear cut to me, I guess. Um, but uh, it's not something I particularly lose sleep over <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the universe is so infinite you know, inestimably vast that the chance of any two life forms encountering each other, that seems almost impossible, not impossible, but improbable. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big, big space out there, man. It definitely is Uh Netflix discovery channel. They need to give you a show, man. You need to <laughs> like, no joke, man. You are, uh, you're, you're such a great human being. You are a true Testament that you can push yourself um, as far as you're willing to go. And you're a true inspiration to many. And I do appreciate you coming on the show, Charlie. Uh, you're a good man. And when you, when you write that next book, we'll definitely fly you out here and have you in the studio for sure. I'd love that. Well, thanks very much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, all the best. Absolutely, brother. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Peace.